0: If being disciples of Jesus means that we follow Jesus, and it does, then we've got to follow Jesus where he goes. We follow Jesus as he feeds the hungry and heals the sick. We follow Jesus as he engages the outsider and embraces the sinner As he confronts the religious authorities, as he teaches in the synagogues and temple, as he preaches on the mountain, we follow Jesus. And we walk with Jesus as he goes with determination and purpose to the city of his execution. We follow Jesus to Jerusalem. In Luke 19, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem Luke says Jesus had set his face toward Jerusalem. Jesus was determined. He intentionally set out for Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus is on a mission and nothing's going to stop him. And as Jesus and his followers pass through Jericho, they're just about 15 miles away from Jerusalem at this point. He's greeted by these huge crowds. And in front of all these people, Jesus plucks a political traitor out of a tree. Zacchaeus had turned his back on his own people. This wee little man had joined forces with the occupying Roman government and he was collecting Roman taxes from his fellow Israelites in order to, in part, fund the occupation. He's a traitor. But Jesus pulls him out of the tree and this tax collector repents. He starts giving the money back. And Jesus says, today salvation has come. And all the people say, yeah, my tax return just quadrupled today. Mama's getting a new pair of shoes and daddy's getting a pool table. Salvation has come today. Amen, indeed. Verse 11, while they were listening to this, all these people at Zacchaeus' house, while they were listening to this, Jesus went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem And the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. So Jesus tells them this story. All these same people at Zacchaeus' house. He tells them a story about a man who goes off to a distant country to become a king. Some of these people in this place didn't want this guy to become their king. They hated this man. But this man who has come from another place is made their king. And by the end of the story, this new king has these haters, these enemies who didn't want him to be their king. He has the enemies brought before him and killed right there on the spot. And when Jesus finishes his story, verse 28, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Jesus is going to Jerusalem where he is going to be made a king, where he is going to establish the eternal kingdom of God. And the crowds of people following him, oh yeah, they're expecting this. They've been looking for this for a long time. You know, the Psalms refer to the city of Jerusalem as that great city of our great King. Jerusalem is the capital, it's the very center of Israel's spiritual life and their messianic hopes. And messianic fever was never pitched higher than it was during Passover week. Passover is all about deliverance from the enemy. It's about rescue from slavery and freedom from the oppressors. That's what God's people always celebrated at Passover. The death of Pharaoh and deliverance from Egypt. And what God's people were expecting this Passover is the death of Caesar and deliverance from Rome. And they came from all over Israel, even from the lands of the exile, to celebrate Passover in the city of Jerusalem. It was required. They had to come, and they did. The first century historian Josephus writes that two and a half million people crammed into Jerusalem during Passover week. That sounds insane. Most scholars today say the number's probably closer to 200,000, but still, that's way too many people for a town this size. It'd be like if Midland hosted the Super Bowl. I mean, where would we put all those people? Can you imagine? You'd never get a table at La Bodega, you never would. It'd be impossible getting out of the Walmart parking lot with that many people in this town. You'd have to wait through that red light at Wadley and Midkiff three times, not twice, if we had that many people in this city. You could charge people 200 bucks to sleep in a sleeping bag in your front yard. That's what it would be like, and that's what it was like here in Jerusalem during Passover week. The social dynamic of what's going on is huge here. It's super crowded. And you've got all this overflow of thousands of people camping out on the hillsides around Jerusalem. And every year, revolution was in the air. You get that many of God's people together in the same place at the same time, and it doesn't take too long until they start feeling pretty powerful. They start feeling their oaths. They start thinking that, that they can do almost anything. And they get very courageous and they get very brave. And so every year during Passover week, the Roman Caesar would have to send extra soldiers and extra guards into Jerusalem because there was so much potential for political conflict and riots and even revolt. And here comes Jesus. Riding right into the middle of all this. And because of his powerful miracles and his great wisdom and his provocative teachings about the kingdom of God, these people welcome Jesus as the promised and coming king. And he is the promised and coming king. Amen? Amen. But let's look at these people first. Look at the people. The people are cheering for the king. Fueled by their messianic excitement, Matthew says the whole city was stirred up when Jesus rode in. Thousands of people camping out in the Kidron Valley below the temple and the east walls of the city. They hear the noise and they look up towards Bethany and here comes Jesus riding down the Mount of Olives right at them. And you've got the crowds from Jericho and Bethany who saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. And they've seen all the miracles. They're coming behind Jesus. And the ones who are camping out in the Kidron Valley, they're now in front of Jesus. They've surrounded Jesus and they're making their way into the city of Jerusalem. And remember Luke says the people expected the kingdom of God to appear at once And they look up and they see Jesus coming in. They're like, this is it. This is the day we've all been looking for. These people knew the prophecies. They knew the signs. They knew the promises of God. As we we read in Zechariah 14, the Lord will fight against the nations as he fights in the day of battle. And on that day, that day of glory, that day of salvation, that day of deliverance, on that day, the Lord's feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. East of Jerusalem, verse nine, the Lord will be king over the whole earth. And on that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. Jerusalem will be raised up and remain in its place. From the Benjamin Gate to the side of the first gate to the corner gate and from the Tower of Hananel to the royal wine presses, it will be inhabited. Never again will it be destroyed. Jerusalem will be secure. The people know this. They're looking for it. They know, Zechariah 9 says, on that day, the king is gonna come into the king's city riding a donkey. Yes, yes. This is it. Finally, this is what we've been waiting for. Hallelujah. Praise God. Gird your loins and strap on your swords, right? Hosanna. It means save us. We're going to flood the streets of Jerusalem with the blood of our Roman oppressors. That's what this is about. And as a sign of submission to this king, they, they throw their coats on the ground in his path, just like they had done for King Jehu in 2 Kings 9. And the people are shouting these nationalistic slogans. What they're shouting is kind of like Psalm 118. It's kind of like a church song, but, but not exactly. They take the scriptures and they make them political Blessed is the king, they say, who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, king's not in Psalm 118, but they thought it sounded good. Hosanna, save us, son of David. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. David's name is not in Psalm 118, but it just felt right. And they're waving these palm branches. You know, palms were the symbol Of Jewish nationalism when the temple was rededicated during the Maccabean era they celebrated by waving palm branches in both of Israel's wars with Rome it was palm branches and palm trees that were stamped on the coins that were minted by the Jewish rebels. Waving palm branches in the streets of Jerusalem is like the Texans waving the 1824 flag or the come and take it flag during the revolution against Mexico. It's like a lot of people will take a don't tread on me flag to their political rallies. This is about overthrowing the occupying regime. This is all about Israel's national hopes which are now laser focused on Jesus. Their unabashed desire. Is that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem to purge the nation of the Roman occupiers. And revive the ancient glories of Israel's heyday under their favorite king, King David. This was when Israel was big and mighty. This is when Israel had power and they had control. Look at the people. That's what they want. And they're not bashful about it. Now, let's look at the king. Verse 41. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. The people are cheering for the king, but the king is crying for the people. The people are cheering and praising. They're exalting Jesus. But Jesus is the only one who really knows what's happening. Jesus is just hours away from revealing to us what the king and the kingdom are really all about. Jesus is about to make an undeniable statement about the will and the ways of our Lord. And some people rejoice in that statement. Some people don't fully understand that statement. Some people reject it. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem to die. He's coming to suffer. He's coming to die. This is not a typical entry of a triumphant king riding into the capital city. This is really almost like an anti triumphal entry. Jesus does not enter Jerusalem on a white charger or a black war horse. He's riding a common lowly beast of burden. He's not carrying a bunch of war trophies. There's not a train of war prisoners or war captives following behind him. In fact, at the end of this week, it's going to be Jesus who's going to be dragged down the streets and outside the city gates to be executed. Jesus doesn't share the people's hopes and dreams of earthly glory and power. He's not establishing a kingdom to rival the Roman Empire. He's coming to suffer. Our Lord is coming to sacrifice. He's coming to die. He comes as a king who, yes, will be crowned, but not with priceless jewels, with painful thorns. He didn't go to Jerusalem to sit on a throne. He went to Jerusalem to hang from a tree. He's doing the exact opposite of what most people expect out of their king. Jesus straight up says no to this world's political power. He had already made that clear out in the desert with the devil in Luke chapter 4. The devil led Jesus up to a high place and showed him in an instant, it says, all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to Jesus, I will give you all of their authority. I will give you all of their splendor. It's mine, the devil says, and I can give it to anybody I want to. The glory and the splendor of all the kingdoms of the world, it's mine. And I can give it to you. Jesus did not dispute the devil's claim. He just didn't want any part of it. Jesus answered, you worship the Lord your God and him only do you serve. That's it. Our Lord Jesus is decidedly not a man of horses and chariots and spears and swords. He is the one who brings joy and peace to all nations. His gift is the gift of life, not conquest and power. But these people, they, they want a forceful conquering king to give them power and control, to give them their rights back, to give them their land back. But in Jesus, they get a sacrificial servant. And when he doesn't deliver on their desires, they kill him. These same people who cry, Hosanna, save us. Jesus says, I will. I've come to save you, just not in the way you expect. These same people shout, crucify him. Jesus says, I'm coming to save you in ways that will far surpass in glory and power anything you or your ancestors ever experienced or dreamed about under the kingship of David. But the people didn't want God's kingdom. They wanted the kingdom of David. And it caused Jesus To weep. Now, let's look at us because we're in this story. You and I are right here in this scene as Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Where are you in this scene? Are you following Jesus? Do you see him as king? And if so, what are you expecting out of Jesus as your king? How do you respond to this statement he makes as he rides a donkey into the place of his torture and death? You know, in some ways, in ways maybe that we don't really think about or maybe in ways we don't fully understand, We act like Jesus is supposed to serve our national interests. We'll use Jesus to advance our own political agendas. We'll use a politician's position or a party's platform as some kind of an end-all, be-all referendum on the lordship of Jesus Christ. You hear this, and I hear this too. All Republicans... Are all Christians have to vote Republican because of the gay marriage position of the Democrats. No, no, no. All Democrats or all Christians have to vote Democrat because of the, the military and the, and the war positions of the Republicans. No, no, no. The church has to be Republican because of the abortion issue. No, no. The church is Democrat because of the immigration issue. Listen to me. We're missing the point with that. If we're going to talk like that, if we're going to think like that, if we're going to act like that, we may as well pull the palm branches down and start waving them, church. Our Lord Jesus did not come to this earth so we can make a better version of the world's kingdoms. He came to this earth so we could be a part of and participate in the everlasting, eternal kingdom of God. Amen. It's not It's not you've got one political party that's good and one's bad. It's not that you've got one that's righteous and one that's evil. It's not that you've got one political party that's Christian and the other one's God. You know what you got? You've got both parties belonging to one broken, fallen, sinful, worldly system. And that system is not going to save you. And it is not going to save the United States of America. Look at him. Look Look at our king. Verse 42, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but it's hidden from your eyes, you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus is weeping because the people are missing it. Are you missing it? We're looking for the wrong things. We're putting our hopes and our expectations in the wrong place. Listen, listen. Jesus Christ is never, ever going to be president of the United States of America. One, he's not running. Two, you wouldn't vote for him if he did. Think about his platform sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Love your enemies. That doesn't poll very well, okay? If Jesus had a bumper sticker on the back of his donkey, you know what it would say? Vote for me and let's die. Be last. That's our Lord Jesus. And I'm not sure we always recognize that. Jesus does not come to us with t-shirts and logos and multi-million dollar campaigns. He doesn't save the world with armies and missiles and markets and policies. He doesn't do it with power or force or threat. Jesus Christ saves the world with love and suffering and sacrifice and death. Are you following him? Jesus rules with a towel not a sword he saves with mercy and forgiveness and peace are you following him your discipleship should be defined by those things your identity should be found in those things this church ought to be characterized by those things Are you following him? Because when you decide to follow Jesus to Jerusalem, you're going to find yourself on a descent into greatness. The kingdom of God is about downward mobility. This is where the last are first. This is where those who die live forever. Are you following him? Our Lord Jesus came to this earth. And he rode into Jerusalem to be crowned a king with this crown. This crown of thorns. This crown of pain and suffering and anguish and shame. This crown is a statement about the kingship of Jesus and the kingdom of God. This crown says it all. This this crown gives us a new way to experience the world. This crown gives us a totally new way to see success. This crown gives us a whole different way of understanding the realities of history. This crown it's everything. The one who wore this crown loves his enemies. His righteousness far surpasses that of the Pharisees. He was rich, but he became poor and he died on the cross for the sake of the world. This crown is not a hurdle, it's not an obstacle, it's not a detour on the way to the kingdom of God. This isn't something you've got to just power through or work around in order to get to the kingdom of God. In fact, this crown is not the way to the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, this crown is the kingdom of God. This is the will of God. This is the kingdom come on earth, just as it is in heaven. And the one who wears this crown is our eternal, almighty, all-sufficient, and only king.
1: You can't have a king without subjects, and I'm not sure if we want to be those, but if you look at our false kings and we know, I mean, we kind of got a thing for the crowns and the robes. We've had a king of pop, kings of rock, and a new king of hoops, but LeBron is not an actual king and Martin Luther King had the most powerful dream and I'm thankful for the songs that he sings but he's not an actual king and we keep putting crowns on kings that get reelected every four years or a king that can fill our bank accounts or a king with the V8 engine but they won't last and we know that we know that when we watch the news and see another scandal gasp and grab our coffee mug handles I can't believe this happened again but we should because that's what happens when you try to turn men into kings But if a king became man, well then what does that mean? An actual king wouldn't tolerate evil. An actual king wouldn't walk on pins and needles trying not to offend the most influential people. See, an actual king did come and he gave his life to his people. An actual king gave his life on the cross. An actual king gave his life for the lost. Jesus is an actual king, a beautiful thought. Let's remember the king. He's not here but he's not gone because a king is a king. Even if we got his crown wrong. If being a
0: disciple of Jesus means we follow Jesus, and it does, then we have to follow Jesus where he goes. We follow Jesus all the way to Jerusalem, church, where he willingly gives up his life for the sake of the world. And we take comfort and confidence. In the words of the apostle in Revelation 17, they will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Jesus Christ is King. May we walk with him in his will. And in his ways. And may the Lord find us as his faithful followers on that great day. Amen? Amen. 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 Stand with me, church. Let's pray together. Father, you are our king. We praise you. We thank you for your kingship, for your lordship. For the salvation, for the rescue, for the deliverance that we have from sin and death and Satan and everything that might ever possibly separate us from you and from one another. God, thank you for saving us with your son's sacrifice, his suffering, his shame, his death. God, thank you. And Father, forgive us. Lord, have mercy. We get our crowns mixed up sometimes. Lord, have mercy. God, today, in the presence of your people, we declare you are our sovereign king. And we bow to you, we confess you as Lord. Today, tomorrow, and forever. And Lord, would you bless us with the strength that we need to keep our eyes on you. And to walk in your will and in your ways. In the name of Jesus, all of God's people together say, Amen.